Racism is with us whether we realise it or not, and it needs to be spoken about. It's not just in the street, it's in our workplaces. It's a serious problem, having serious effects on our mental health and our economy. So how do we start the conversation, and what can we do to make a difference? Welcome to With Not For, a podcast from the Centre for Inclusive Design. My name is Manisha Amin, speaking to you from the lands of the Kamaragal people here in North Sydney, Australia. And joining me today on With Not For is Roger Augustin. Roger is an author, a journalist, a producer and a director, and has worked in print, electronic and digital media. She is also the founder of Break Night Films, producing creative works including Roger's own podcast and web series, The Right Space. Roger is originally a New Yorker and now calls Australia home. Welcome to With Not For, Roger. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here. Last year, you did a piece for Australia's public broadcaster, ABC, where you revealed that racism was costing our economy millions. Can you tell me about that? So, you know, the researchers out of Deakin University found that racism does have an economic cost and it trickles down in three, basically three kind of areas, direct cost to the individual who experiences it. So, you know, constantly experiencing this kind of thing can have an impact on your mental health. And so that continues for too long and you suffer through things like, you know, anxiety, depression, PTSD. You don't show up for work. You're less productive. The costs born out of your own pocket to treat your illness can be a cost to public health care system. And then there are the costs to the businesses where talent is lost, for example. Uh, productivity goes down. Um, and overall, the what they worked out is that in in calculating all of these losses that are experienced through acts of discrimination, it costs the Australian economy something like, you know, $30 billion a year. To me, it's just like, <laughs> that's a great way to start to talk about policy change. If you can show the effect to, you know, the bottom line, which is what people tend to pay attention to is the money, um, then it's a great argument, you know, for trying to change policy. And that article actually was supported by research that I had done um, from another book uh, written by a woman named Heather McGee, which is called The Sum of Us. Great book. And she basically outlines drained pool politics. You know about that, right? Absolutely. Which means basically drained pool politics is the idea that, well, if they can also have all these benefits, then no one can, you know? If we have to share with them, then we're not sharing at all. We're, we're not even giving it to ourselves. And you saw that happen, you know, from around the 60s onwards after the civil rights movement when desegregation became, you know, mandated. Right. Um, before that, you know, America, the example that she uses, America was just like, you know, resplendent in public pools and public parks and all these gorgeous amenities that were um, funded by local governments. Communities were really invested in. That was during segregation because they were white only. And then, of course, the ruling to desegregate meant that now black folks would be allowed to use these public pools and zoos and parks. And rather than let that happen, these communities decided, we'll drain the pool, we'll fill it with concrete, no one will use it because we don't want to share. That's right. And that gutted communities all across America. 
And what people don't realize is that policy continues to this day. And it's the reason why you don't have, you know, a universal health care system, for example, or child care system or social safety nets in America, because tax revenue has been so decreased. It used to be up until about the 50s or 60s, tax rate was really high in America for the wealthy. They cut that back because they didn't want that revenue going into these social services that would benefit everyone because black people would benefit from it as well. And this is the vicious cycle that we're talking about. Yeah. And I think why it's so important for issues like race to be addressed by organisations. Mm-hmm. Because we might think that it's just an issue about race, but it's actually an issue about so much more. Yeah, and that's where this article about the cost of racism to the economy is so important because um, Heather McGee really outlined brilliantly how those costs just end up hurting everyone. You know, racism ends up hurting everyone. And you see that here too. What do you think the difference is, especially your work experience, um, between the two countries? Obviously, in Western countries, wealthy Western countries, you do experience a lot of the same people with the privileges. So that has not changed. And, you know, between the two countries and with those privileges, you get issues like unconscious bias and you know, racial discrimination. Where it's different is America, as you all know, has a very long history of, you know, African Americans being part of society there. Um, obviously, from the horrible long history of slavery. Mm-hmm. But because of that, I always felt a bit more comfortable because there were a lot more people around who looked like me. And in Australia, I think sometimes when we think about race and diversity, it's not about the colour of one's skin as much as where people have come from. Very true. Yeah. That's another thing that I noticed here. My husband, who's white Australian, um, you know, we always have conversations about this and he lived in New York with me for many years. So he knows the whole issue with race and black people and this and that. So we're always chatting about it. And um, one of the things that I often hear him say, you know, when I when I say come home and say, God, you know, that place wasn't diverse. I was the only person of color there. And he was like, well, there were Lebanese people there. There were Greek people there. There were, you know, so-and-so. And here that is, that that represents diversity. Whereas coming from the States, Greek, Lebanese people, they would all be lumped in as white people. Right. <laughs> so when I see that, I actually don't see diversity. Even I, though technically it is, but, you know, to your point, I think you're right. I mean, here it means something pretty different. I mean, look, I always feel for me, maybe I'm I'm speaking from my own personal world and experience as a brown skinned person mm-hmm. um, in America. That is what trumps everything. It trumps class. It trumps culture. It is the color of your skin. Whereas in the UK, I found that class is what trumps everything. So I was treated very differently in the UK than I was in the States because they could recognize my class and my education. Whereas in the States, that didn't matter. You know, you could be, you could be like, you know, magna cum laude graduate of Harvard University or something, and you can't get a cab in New York City because you're a black man. You know right. what I mean? So if you think about those two 
examples of the difference between the UK and 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 America. How do you think that difference plays out in Australia? So if you had the same, well, it's still overwhelmingly white <laughs> to me is what I see in the particularly. I mean, you look in politics. You know, I mean, just there, I think this country absolutely should have an indigenous prime minister. I think it's appalling that that hasn't happened yet. I feel that Australia is a little bit behind, you know, the UK and the US in terms of its inclusion, inclusionary, whatever the word is, in terms of how it presents itself in these arenas like politics and media. Those are the two main ones. Racism has actually impacted on you and your life in the past, and I'm oh yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure it continues to just like it is, does any of us who are of a different race to the majority. Um, how have you dealt with this problem in the past? And, and can you tell us a little bit about how this plays out? You know, it's interesting. When you asked that question just now, a thought came to mind because you said you probably still continue to go through it. And to be honest, I think things have changed so much in my lifetime that I'm really pleased to see the progress that is happening. I'm so pleased to see the conversation happening over and over again, that it's really becoming part of the fabric of of social life here and, and around the, you know, at least I know it's happening in the States. The UK is pretty diverse, but, you know, we're here in Australia. We're talking about Australia. The way I experience racism nowadays, and I'm trying to be very self-aware, is more of internalized, self-inflicted. And what I mean by that is... Because racism has been such a pernicious and horrible force throughout human history, its tentacles have just seeped into, you know, into life in all aspects of life for so long, you know, that's been the the kind of, you know, the way things are. So that now we're at a point where things are changing, but I have internalized so much of the racism from my childhood, what I experienced like in the 80s and the 90s growing up in New York, that I find sometimes I'm thinking to myself, was that person rude to me because I'm black? You know, if I go into, if I go into a shop and somebody's, you know, the person behind the counter is not, not necessarily polite or is very short with me, I think I walk away thinking, how do I know that wasn't because of my color? And I'm the one planting that seed. For all I know, that person's had a bad day. That's all. And they didn't even think about my color. They might be treating everyone who walks into the store the same way. But because of the legacy of racism, a brown-skinned person will pick up an extra thorn because now you're thinking it might be because of your color. Right. You never know. And that's the worst part about racism to me. And what would your thinking be around how we, uh, as people who might not have faced racism, actually deal with this in a way that's sensitive and where we're doing the learning rather than saying to that person, well, you know, that thorn doesn't really exist, become more resilient. That's a great question. And again, it speaks to the horrible minefield that (laughs) racism is. It's just such a terrible, terrible force because all of this confusion, right? It gets really muddy. I I often feel really, I feel for white people, you know, (laughs) I really do because 
for the most part, I can tell they're trying. They care. You know, I have so many friends. I mean, most of my friends here in Sydney, obviously, are white, you know, where I live, my husband and everything. So, and that's fine. I don't care. Um, but I know that they they really want to, to, to show that they don't care about race. But I, I can tell it's scary for them because they don't all often know. I was talking to a woman recently, um, a, a lovely white woman, white Australian woman, who used the word colored with me to refer to, you know, black people. Um, and she used it a couple of times. And and I remember thinking to myself, oh, you don't know that you're not supposed to use that word, you know, and I wanted to say to her, don't ever use that word. I didn't because she clearly wasn't a racist. She didn't mean it in, with any kind of malice. And I could tell that it was just an innocent thing. She just didn't know. And I wasn't offended by that, you know. So I think this is one of the issues with racism in general is that it does create this minefield where you can't necessarily just do um, a blanket kind of, oh, that's racist, what you said, you're therefore you're a racist and you need to be punished or, or what have you. Because, you know, sometimes it's just innocuous and people don't realize it and you just have to see it for that, you know, it's intention. What can people do to support people who have been impacted by racism in the workplace? I think, you know, this is going to sound like kind of a weird answer, but I really think it, it, at least it's a start. I think in the workplace, if there's, say, a white manager, right, and he's got a team of people, and let's say one person on his team is a person of color, and let's say you're in a meeting and you need to get, you know, sort of like suggestions from each member of the team, start with a person of color. Right, okay. Don't leave them for last. Right. Always do that. Just start with them because that's a, that is a start. Because what, what the white manager may not know is that if you consistently leave that person for last, not only does it speak to your unconscious bias, but that person thinks, oh, I'm the black person, the only black person here, and I'm always being ca called last. Does that make sense? That's really interesting because what you're, I think, alluding to is that often we assume especially if we come into the conversation with good intent, that we are all equals and that we are in the meeting because of our merit. Mm -hmm. However, what that does is that the bias in that is the idea that life is equal. Mm. And so by actually asking the people who potentially have been impacted more by life yeah. or by other systems to speak first and to yeah. speak out, what we're doing is we're readdressing and rebalancing the system. Exactly rather than saying, well, we're all equal here. It doesn't matter who I ask first or last. Exactly. That's very well said. That's exactly it. And it's not trying to be like singling out the person of color. It's more what you're saying to just balance it out, to bring it back a bit. Because, you know, many times it has happened to me, one of the last organizations I worked with, this consistently happened, you know, and it made me feel horrible. <laughs> and it wasn't the kind of thing that I could go and say to my manager, why do you always wait until, uh, you know, why do I, I always, I, I'm, I'm always the one who's asked last. We go around the room, no matter where I am in the position on the Zoom, I always came last. And right. that really stuck with me. And I wanted to say to her, can just once or twice, you could call me first or second or something. So I don't always feel like I'm being, you know, I'm the, the, you know, last sort of thought, you know, like an afterthought, it kind of felt like. So I think you make a really good point. You've crystallized what I've tried to say <laughs> and that, yeah, you redress it, you bring the balance back. At least it's a good start. 
But it's a really interesting point as well because it's a simple thing that people can do. Yeah. Right? We, you know, we're not talking about um, changing the way we work completely. We're not even talking about changing the days that we celebrate. We're actually yeah. talking about how we Really include- small things, yeah. Mm. Really small things. That's the things that managers or people, they don't notice, you know. Have you got another really small thing? Because these are really big things. And I'm loving it. Yeah. Well, they can. Yeah, they do end up being big things. Um, yeah, it's about being aware of the nuances because that's what we have left, right? The big rocks of racism have been addressed, you know, like the very, very big one was slavery. Obviously, that's gone and done with for the most part. Let's hope. I mean, I don't know what parts of the world may still have it, unfortunately, you know, hopefully not many, but then you get down to the discrimination and then you get down to the unconscious biases and then you get down to the nuances that are, you know, leftovers from the unconscious biases. And I think that's where we're all kind of living these days and these small interactions that still leave little thorns, you know, because people aren't aware that actually this makes a difference, you know, for example, not calling on the one person of color last. <laughs> and you've worked in media for a lot of your life. How do you see media's role in here? And do you think that there is a piece around socialization and bias that Absolutely. comes into this? That, that is the meat of it for me. It's the media. The media for me is where it begins because I think, look, I think, you know, racial discrimination, racism, all of that stuff is is a story, you know, it's that they're all based on false narratives, you know, that have been around for centuries. Um, And they're reinforced through popular culture. Right. So through, um, you know, magazines and newspapers, news broadcasts, movies, television shows, you know, everywhere. Again, it's changing more and more. But the reason that I got into the media is because I noticed, you know, just walking down the street, Everywhere I looked, it was just white faces everywhere. Billboards, magazine covers, commercials, everywhere. And wherever you did see brown faces, it was always quite negative. And that has a huge impact on you. It's psychologically debilitating after a while to grow up feeling like you, you're so unimportant. Right. <laughs> you so don't matter to us that we won't even bother putting your face anywhere other than to serve our narrative, which is to keep you down, you know? And that's why I got into television and and media and writing stories, because for me, that's where it all begins. We have to change the narratives. How were you able to manage that? What were some of the tools you used to actually change the dialogue? The way I dealt with it, I think I always tried to push diversity. Like I was always trying to bring up um, suggestions that, hey, how about we do a story on, you know, Lawrence Fishburne, you know, who's just come out, you know, in The Matrix, one of the biggest films of the year. Um, You know, when we'd be in editorial meetings and trying to come up with story ideas, who should we profile this and that. And it was shocking to me that it was always shut down, you know. Um, it was always like, well, no, let's do let's do Mikhail Baryshnikov, you know, this like retired ballet dancer that 
Right. I hadn't, you know, wasn't really relevant at the time. I just remember this was one of the last sort of meetings that I had at, uh, at, um, you know, my job at, in the States at a broadcaster. So that's the way I, I typically dealt with it is just trying to plant that seed wherever I went, you know, and for a long time, no one was listening to it. No one cared. People looked at me like I was crazy. Right. And then eventually they caught up, <laughs> you know, through pressure. And then you moved to an organization in a country, I guess, that doesn't have the same volume yeah. of at least visible yeah. um, people of color. Yeah. And, and you know, especially if we take into account um, the diversity that we have in this country with our First Nations peoples as well. Um, how did that conversation then, did you have to start again from scratch? Yes. or So it was fellow land again. It was so hard. It right. was so, so hard. It was actually quite depressing for me. I just thought, what did I do? I had gone backwards. My whole mission in life, in my work in particular, was to, you know, push that that message of diversity, inclusion. That was always my passion, my mission. And I came to Australia thinking I could pick it up you know, in, in my work here, or I, I didn't even know what I was thinking. <laughs> but when I landed here and started working, it was like I had gone back to the 80s in America. And it was so just heartbreaking for me, you know, because I had to start all over again. It was really hard. And what did you do to get through that? Because I think one of the things we sometimes forget is that some of the difficulty when we are fighting the good fight, if you like, is just the um, the emotional energy and the energy it takes on the person doing the fighting. Yeah. I just kept going. I just kept trying. Just never stopped. I just, you know, just, just thinking about it now, it's almost bringing me to tears because it was that difficult, you know, to just be faced with the same shit all over again. Right. And then to know that it was changing in my homeland, you know, without me, you know, like that's where I wanted to be in that, in that swell of like change and, and be a part of it. And I wasn't there and I was here where it wasn't happening yet. And um, I'm like one of the few people, well, I, I know that there are a lot, there are a lot of people I think here in Australia who are pushing for that. Um, you just don't see them, you know, you don't see them in popular like mainstream media. So that's what I did. I just kept kept trying, just kept going. And if you look at that today, um, how have you seen that change or where do you see, I guess, the, the rays of hope? I see a little bit happening in, in mainstream media. I see it, you know, in my industry, television, because I, I, I'm in scripted television writing stories because I think stories are really powerful um, for that kind of to that end. Um, and I see more and more of it, slightly more, not enough, not nearly enough. Um, so, yeah, I, I continue to push for it. You know, I, I feel like in writers rooms, you know, it's still. And the thing, too, is because I'm not indigenous, I don't fall into that cat. You know what I mean? Like there are all these kind of um, charters and things that you know, production have in place so that enough Indigenous people, you know, are brought in, which is fantastic. There needs to be even way more. Um, but in terms of ticking that diversity box, I don't. <laughs> I don't think so much because I'm not Indigenous. You know, I'm, 
I'm a foreigner, African-American. So it's been really, really difficult to find a place here, to find a home in, in television. And in fact, I've, I've started to focus back on the States and, 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 you know, the stuff I write is, is America focused um, because I mean, it's just really, really difficult here. So when is it important for people who haven't experienced racism mm-hmm. to actually go out and do their own research and gain some knowledge? And when is it important for them to actually engage with the person who has experienced racism in their organisation? I think all the time. I think it has to be something that you are vigilant about. It can't be, you know, it can't just be a destination. Well, I've done this, you know, my my work is done and, you know, I've, I've, I've hired the person of colour and blah, blah, blah. Now we're diverse. I think it has to be like brushing your teeth. It's something that you do every day forever where you, you're always saying, because it benefits you as well, you know? Right. And this is why I was interested in what people who haven't experienced racism and have had a lot of privilege, I'm interested to know what they feel they will be giving up in order to level the playing fields, because there is still resistance in many areas, and I see it most in, in media, and I want to know, why are you resisting? What are you afraid of? I think this is such a powerful question, and I think um, it's a real gift that you're giving out to the community, actually, is this notion of what do we give up? Because I think we think we can have it all and still work the way we've always worked. But the reality is if we do that, someone's always going to be lower down and lesser. So when we think about what can we give up, what are some of the things that people could give up or what are the things that they need to start thinking about? Um, because often what I hear as a response to this question is, well, what we're giving up is time to learn more or we're actually you know, raising awareness around racism, which is, I guess, what we're doing here today. Mm. Um, however, when you're talking about what are we going to give up, you're talking about how do we change the system really as well, mm. aren't you? Absolutely. It's, it's power. Yeah. It, it comes down to power and wealth, you know, and I think that there is a fear that power, you see it a lot in the States, you know, um, to give up that 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 space on the pedestal, you know, that the, the throne, like I'm in a position of power. I wield a lot of control. I don't want to give it up, you know, and that's the resistance. But what they don't realize is resisting like that. You just end up screwing it up for everyone in the long run. Right. You know, because then you create these very divisive societies that just give way to all kinds of you know, division like that you find with poverty and, um, you know, it just trickles down into health and communities and, you know, all the things that kind of um, are consequences of, of that sort of thinking right. of I'm better than you, you know, us versus them, whatever. It's just, it's ridiculous. You know, it's, it's just there to maintain a power structure. And yeah, I think there's a fear. And that brings me to this term, white fragility, and I think um, it's a term that's bandied around a lot. (laughs) In your view, what is white fragility? What does it mean? I think it means um, this kind of anxiety that comes when people of privilege are confronted with their privilege, you know, and they're confronted with, you know, the systemic racism that they've benefited from. And you point it out to them and they're just like, 
I don't know how to deal with that because it's not my fault. I didn't do it. You know, like I didn't even know I was, you know what I mean? And I do understand that. I totally understand that because it's true. You know, generations today, they aren't necessarily the ones who put these systems in place. They definitely benefit from it and maintain it. So that's their role in it. But I can see how it must be very difficult also on that side of the fence to to suddenly be confronted with like this slap in the face. Right. You've got to change the way you think. You've got to change the way you do business. All of this. It's it's a lot. You know, I get that. And that's why having these conversations together is is really good. So your earlier question was, when is it, you know, when is it important to have the conversation with the people? All the time. All the time. Yeah. So for people listening to this podcast, what is the last thing you'd like to say Mm -hmm. to them? for them to be able to walk away with something in their back pocket that they're going to do differently? I would like those people, and we're talking about people with privilege, who are privileged, privileged Australians, and you know who you are. (laughs) We know who you are. I think in particular pay attention to those people who don't have the privilege that you do and make an effort to level that playing field like you were saying so as we were discussing earlier you know ask the person of color first or ask the woman first you know if you've got a whole group of men and one woman ask her first or do you see what I mean like just make it a point to balance that out by just bringing awareness as much as possible I just feel like they walk around and they don't see anything you know open your eyes Absolutely. Thank you so much for that, Roger. Uh, fabulous conversation. I think we could talk for hours on this topic. It's such Absolutely. a complex yeah. and it's such a complex and interesting area. Um, it's not one that we talk about a lot, I think, in Australia. Um, we tend to talk about other issues, but I think racism is one of those ones that can be one of the biggest areas and one of the most challenging areas. It's um, the original sin. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So thank you so much um, for being here and thank you everyone for listening and being with us here today on With Not For. If you'd like to know more about how you can make your world more inclusive, contact us at www.cfid.org.au or see the show notes. We'll actually have some connections and links there for some of the things that Roger has done as well. I highly recommend that you look at them, particularly the books she's written. Until next time, this is Manisha Amin from the Centre for Inclusive Design.